Hello and welcome. I'm Roger Ream, and this is the Liberty and Leadership Podcast, a conversation with TFAS alumni, supporters, faculty, and friends who are making a real impact in public policy, business, philanthropy, law, and journalism. Today, I'm joined by Professor James Otteson, a TFAS senior scholar and the John T. Ryan Jr. Professor of Business Ethics at the University of Notre Dame. When he's not teaching, Jim is writing books with the newest and ninth book getting released just this past December. We're going to hear from Jim about his interesting books on economics and philosophy, his work with TFAS, and what it is like to be a full-time professor while also spending time writing many books. Jim, congratulations on your new book, and thanks for joining me today. Thank you very much, Roger. It's a pleasure to be with you. And we're here in uh, sunny uh, Amelia Island, uh, Florida, uh, at our yes. TFAS donor conference, and you'll be speaking tonight uh, after dinner. Uh, we, we appreciate you joining us. Could you give us a, a hint of what you'll be talking about tonight? Yeah, the topic tonight, I think, is it's uh, not just going to be me. I think Ann Bradley's going to be joining me on the stage, but yeah. I think we're going to have a discussion about some of the misconceptions about capitalism. So what is capitalism? What is it not? Um, some of the objections and uh, people raise to it, some of the worries they have about it. Um, and in particular are some of the worries that they raise, or some of the legitimate concerns that are raised about it, really about capitalism itself, or is it about things that are related to capitalism? You know, One little example of that is I, I think many of the – um, the, the real concerns people raise about market economies or countries in which you have something of a market economy, um, I would put under the heading more of cronyism than capitalism. Um, but those things get conflated a lot. And so people t tend to see them all as being one thing. Mm -hmm. But I do think it's important to separate those sorts of things out because there might be benefits and liabilities to capitalism. Um, but it's a very different thing from cronyism. Yeah, well, uh, just if you take the word capitalism, I know I've seen surveys that show uh, support or comparisons between socialism and capitalism. Mm -hmm. And when they ask young people, it's about an even tie yeah. with, with about a third not knowing which one they yep. care. But uh, if you ask the same question and use the word free enterprise, it right. does much better than the word capitalism. Do you still use the word capitalism? Do you like it or do you try to shy away from that word? I don't word? like the word. Okay. Um, and, you know, I have, I have a sort of a philosophical reason for not liking the word, but also really a kind of rhetorical or strategic reason because the word capitalism is a loaded word with a lot of baggage. Um, you know, and it was, after all, Karl Marx who popularized that word. Adam Smith never used it. So Adam mm -hmm. Smith wrote about capital and he wrote about capitals, things you own or invest, assets you might have. But this notion of capitalism as sort of a syndrome, almost kind of like a disease, as uh, Marx thought of it as kind of a disease of soul. Um, this was, um, you know, Marx popularized this idea. So today, you know, bringing it into the 21st century, if somebody calls you a capitalist, that's usually not meant as a compliment. You know, that, that's a that's a derogatory pejorative term. Um, and the real and. But I think the real sort of reason to avoid terms like that, because a lot of the ism terms, capitalism or capitalist, socialism, socialist, um, when you use, when you begin a discussion with those terms, people on various sides of those issues are going to start to dig in their heels immediately because they're feeling like, okay, this is a battle and I need to defend myself against whatever the, um, whatever the other, the other side is. I think it's much better to say something, to begin with something like, um, Look, let's 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 discuss some shared values. Um, poverty is a problem. Poverty is a has attendant miseries. 
Um, we would agree. We both, no matter what side you're on, you're going to agree with that. Um, let's ask ourselves and maybe do some investigation into, well, what system of political economy, what kinds of institutions seems to do the best at enabling people to rise out of poverty, um, um, minimizing the attendant misery, miseries of poverty, um, and that's a way that we can begin having a conversation, no matter what side of the issue you're on. And there, I think, I mean, I, I, I know the kinds of polls you're thinking about where, yeah. the, you know, people say, well, you know, they're not sure about capitalism and socialism. But um, to be honest, Roger, I think a lot, of the, a lot of the people who are asked in those polls, if you ask them define capitalism or define socialism, they probably couldn't do that either. I mean, they, they probably think, you know, capitalism is something like it's fine to be a, you know, a selfish, greedy so-and-so. Um, and, you know, everybody wants to get theirs and they'll stab other people in the back if they want. Well, who's going to be in favor of that? If that's the, and what is socialism? Well, if socialism is we want to help people when they need help. Okay. Yeah. Well, those are the alternatives. <laughs> well, who's going to pick the first one? Yeah. And, and uh, in some of those same surveys, uh, young people, when you ask them about socialism, they seem to think it has something to do with the social media that they use. <laughs> it's Facebook <laughs> right. or something. Yeah. Or it's Sweden. Yeah. You know, it's Sweden. Which, or it's a place which like Sweden. Which tends to yes. rank higher than the U.S. on the Index of Economic Freedom. Which, so. yes. And in, in one of the uh, the great untold ironies. Uh, yes, that's true. And, and yeah. yeah, I mean, there are other interesting things. Look, Sweden's a great place. Um, but, you know, Sweden is a tiny little country. You know, if Sweden were a state, its total economic uh, output, so its GDP, would be at or near the bottom of this, so below Alabama, below Mississippi, whatever state you might think of as a poor state in the United States. You know, these are very small. Um, heterogene country. Mostly heterogeneous until I recent mean, years, of in, course. Yeah, in Scandinavia. Yeah. You know, it's, it's almost as if I was recently in Norway for the first time, and I, you know, part of my family uh, um, has uh, Norwegian roots, but... You know, it's basically everybody is, you know, they're all more or less cousins of one another. Mm -hmm. you know, um, they have very similar religious beliefs, very similar uh, culture. So, um, you know, things can work in a community like that yeah. that can't work when you have 330 million people of vastly different experiences, different races, different religions, different visions of the good life. Yeah. So it just, those kinds of things, it's very difficult to try to scale them. Yeah, yeah. I recall... Uh at least a dozen years ago, uh, the economist Russ Roberts spoke to our students and he was, uh, he, he, he made mention of the fact that in a sense, the two words got reversed, uh, that, uh, yeah, that, uh, oh, the, the free market economy is it's, it's about voluntary cooperation oh, among see, people. So it's, it's social, social. Uh, yeah. it's social. It's yeah, that's a nice people acting, you know, needing each other and, and, and pursuing, you know, Smith and pursuing their self-interest, they yeah. benefit others. Whereas the word capital comes from Latin, meaning really head, mm -hmm. you know, top, it's top down. It's the head I runs see. everything. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, he said, it's too bad. We didn't, you know, somehow get those reversed. Yeah. But you know, that's an interesting, I like that. There's yeah. a, I like that point, you know, and one of the things that, um, so, you know, I teach in a business school now at the university of Notre Dame. One of the things that I spend a lot of time talking with my students about is, you know, let's not think about, the buzzwords and whatever association you may or may have with capitalism or socialism. But let's just think about um, if you're actually in business in a market economy, you're, you want to start a business, you're running a business. Let's suppose you're the CEO of a business. Um, who are you spending your time thinking about? Are you thinking only about yourself? Are you saying, what's in it for me? Well, if you do that, you're going to go out of business in a New York minute because what do you need to be thinking about? Customers, clients, employees, all of the relationships you have. Yeah. And, any successful enterprise is going to be one where people are united like a team and they have a vision, a purpose that they're all on board with, which means 
You're cooperating with one another. You're not in competition with your fellow, you know, the people in your company. You're cooperating with them. And if you look at, think about all the different businesses and all the different industries in a market economy, what you see is an enormous amount of goodwill cooperation between people. People want themselves, their partners, their, um, their colleagues, their peers, their customers, their clients. They want them to succeed. So, um, I mean, you know, I'm speaking in general terms and there are exceptions yeah, to, every, to everything, but there's an enormous amount of goodwill cooperation that we just don't notice or we don't pay attention to because we focus on, you know, the few bad examples and the bad actors, which there are, um, but that's not representative of, of what is actually going on on a day-to-day basis in a market economy. Yeah. Well, let's, let's uh, talk about this issue you've already touched on about, you know, the the hope, I guess, that all of us, whether whatever economic systems we think we are supporting, want to see people flourish, want to see right. people lifted out of poverty. You've spoken at our programs uh, about uh, uh, what you would just probably describe as, as uh, two problems that need to be addressed in society or seemingly people want to address alleviating poverty. And then there are others who are concerned about inequality. Oh, yes. And yeah. uh, you've posed the question, if you could eliminate just one of those two problems, which mm-hmm. one would you eliminate? Could you talk a little bit more about that juxtaposition of those two concepts, yeah, poverty and, and inequality? So th- you're right. So those are, um, those are two things that, uh, that many of us, no matter what side of the political or economic spectrum you might be on, um, young people especially, they care about both of those. They care about poverty. They care about inequality. Um, so asking that question, if you could, if you could get rid of one, but not the other, so not both, um, which would you pick? I think that's a really interesting question. First of all, because it helps clarify for students what really matters most to them. So, you know, whatever your answer to that is, whether you think inequality is a greater cause of misery or suffering or problems in the world or poverty is, that's going to give you some indication of what system of political economy you might ultimately endorse. You know, what, what, what set of policies would you endorse? Mm-hmm. But the other interesting thing about this, and this is what really prompts me to ask that question, is because it looks as if that's not just a, you know, an, maybe a philosophically interesting question to ask, but it looks as if that's the actual dilemma we face. Because if, when you look at the history of humanity as far back as we know, so and we have pretty good economic data going back as, at least as far as about 12,000 years ago, 10,000 B.C. Hmm. Um, so there's very little change in human life during that period. Um, and in real terms, the average amount of wealth is very low and very consistent. So what is it um, th- for the, uh, that almost that entire time? It's about um, $3 in contemporary U.S. dollars, $3 per person per day or less. Very little variation, so it's extremely low, extreme, and that's not much. I mean, imagine trying to live for, you know, $3 yeah. for everything, food, clothing, shelter, equipment to make podcasts, you know, <laughs> um, that's not easy. Um, and then all of a sudden something takes off. So around 1800 or so, for the first time in human history, the, the overall amount of wealth in the world begins to increase. And now it's gone to previously unprecedented levels. So we now are blessed to live at a time when there's more wealth in the world than there has ever been in human history. So here's the interesting question. Um, When when people were living in that very low level for all of the previous um, parts of human history, um, there was a great deal of equality. Yeah, we were all poor, equally poor. Equally poor, exactly. And then the first time in human history that we've finally been able to figure out how to enable more people to rise out of those very low levels of poverty... Um, substantially everybody's getting better, but not at the same rate. So it looks like those really are the choices you face. You can mm-hmm. say, 
Um, we want everybody to rise out of poverty, but you'll, and you'll get that, but not quite at the same rate. Some will get um, wealthier faster than others. Substantially, everybody's coming up, but not at the same rate. So you're getting wealth, but inequality, or you can have equality, but poverty. So it looks like that really is the dilemma we face. Yeah, that's that, that's interesting. If you, uh, I, I read something the other day about uh, the Lewis and Clark expedition, mm-hmm. and uh, when you think about that expedition, they traveled the same way people traveled ten thousand years yeah, earlier, right? By exactly. Boat, no maybe maybe yeah. by horse, yeah. uh, and yeah. uh, and the change in tra- yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and the change that took place in the next two hundred years, we went from you know traveling by boat or horse to you know railroads to yeah airplanes to jets that could beat the sound barrier to sending someone to the moon. I mean, the acceleration of that, the communication revolution that took place, you know, they could communicate as far as they could shout (laughs) and not much further. Uh, And uh, now we, now we communicate digitally. And and it's it's really hard, I think, especially for, you know, I I teach at a university so that I deal with students who are young. I mean, just think about students who are entering the university today. So they don't remember a time without Google. They don't without remember a, a time without, and, without yeah. internets, without smartphones. So it's not part of their lived experience. So to get them to understand what life was like, you know, just in your and my lifetime, yeah. let alone 100 years ago, um, it's very hard. It requires a lot of sort of, you know, imaginative, you know, historical yeah. imagination trying to enter into it. Um, but it wasn't that long ago. I mean, it just wasn't. You know, when you think about all the way back when the United States was founded, you know, George Washington's first president you know, in 1800, right after our founding, um, average life expectancy in the United States was among the highest in the world at that time. And it was 29. Yeah. 29. Yeah. What is it now? Well, you know, it's approaching 80 in the yeah. United States. Yeah. So, you know, that's not that long ago. And yet something remarkable has happened. And that's not even talking to things like, you know, Internet, smartphones, sending people to the moon. So um, it's a little bit like, I think, the, the miracle of compounding interest. You know, if you've heard this story and we teach this, you know, if you had some banking or you understand about how that works, you know, when you start re, uh, re, um, saving for your retirement, um, you put a little bit away at the beginning of your career and maybe each month you put a little bit each month and what is, what happened? Well, it doesn't really do much of anything for a long time. And then it really starts to take off. And, um, and that's a little bit like, I think what prosperity, and we finally got the right elements in place and it took it a little time, but once it started going, holy cow. Yeah. Uh, my, my grandfather, you know, that's two generations back. He had ice delivered by horse drawn mm-hmm. buggy to his house in Chicago. Yeah. <laughs> You know, earlier in the 20th century. Yeah. My my former stepfather's passed away now, but um, he grew up when he was a kid delivering bottles of milk to the neighborhood on a horse drawn carriage. (laughs) It wasn't that long ago. Well, well, let's let me ask you what accounts for this tremendous burst of wealth uh, creation that took place beginning in the 18th or 19th century. It was, um, so, you know, like anything in human history, there are lots of things that uh, were in play, but I think um, we really got lucky with a couple of things that, uh, that fell together. But one thing I would, I would um, really emphasize is I think people began, there was really a moral revolution before there was an institutional revolution. Um, so a lot of the elements, the institutional elements that we might think and that many economists today, development economists today say are required for there to be economic development. Um, a lot of those institutional things have been present in the past, but there hasn't been any increase in overall wealth. Um, 
things like um, you know, a favorable geography or a literate populace, uh, maybe even educated populace. I mean, the Song Dynasty in China around 1,080, 1,000, well, they had uh, philosophers and written language and science. They had gunpowder, but no increase. You know, they were sending ships around. They were building ships. Large country, big geography, literate population, but no general wealth increase. So, so it's, it's none of those. Th those things might be necessary, but they're not sufficient. So what changed? What I would argue or would suggest is it's a big story. I'll just give you a little yeah, bit of it. Yeah. But, uh, you know, t the little story is um, people's mindsets started to shift. So in particular, you know, if you think about if you have something that I want, um, you know, I can, there are a couple of ways I can get it from you. I can, um, I can steal it from you. I can kill you and take it. Um, I can steal it when you're not looking. Um, or I can make you an offer and we come to an agreement. That second way of making people an offer, um, which I would call cooperation, cooperating with you, um, people began to think that maybe that was not just efficient, meaning, you know, next time, you know, you're a good partner for me and I can get something out of you, but it might also be moral. Mm -hmm. In other words, maybe it's morally superior way of a morally superior way for me to deal with you by asking your permission instead of just killing you or enslaving you or taking stuff from, from you if I'm stronger than you. And if you think about most of human history, that's what most of human history is. It's as soon as one person or group gets enough power or strength, what do they do? They conquer other people. They enslave kill them. other people. They, they take their stuff. They enslave or, them. Exactly. Yeah. That's what has always happened. Um, and what people began to do in certain small parts of the world around you know, the 17th century, you see people, they start making these arguments that, well, maybe it's morally better to ask people's permission. And as soon as you be people begin to do that, then what you begin to have is not these extractive exchanges where I'm just stealing from you that don't, by the way, lead to a net increase in prosperity. If I just steal your iPhone from you, that's not adding another iPhone mm -hmm. to the world. It's just moving it from one place to another. But if you and I are trading something where you value something and I value something, we both get value out of it. Well, now we're generating more actual value in the world. As soon as you start to get people doing that, um, then you get these more of these positive sum transactions. And like the miracle of compounding interest, the more of those you have, the more prosperity that can lead to. And so I think that had a lot to do with the, with the rapid increase. What role, if any, do you think religion played in this? And, and the, ah, yeah, the idea of, yeah. uh, you know, human dignity of individuals having, you know, created in the image of their creator and therefore they have their, they should be respected. It's and, a good question. And it's, I mean, historically speaking, it's a hard one to answer. Um, I think there's a strong correlation because the places and people who be, who were first starting to make an argument about why we should ask people their, you know, for consent or permission to mm -hmm. deal with them rather than just conquering them and treating them like barbarians and all of these terms that people use that indicated their own moral superiority to others. The first people who started making an argument about moral equality, you know, that we're all um, moral agent, equal moral agents, um, tended to be people who are Christians. And they invoked that in the name of their vision of um, theism. We're all uh, in the image and likeness of God. We're all children of God. That includes not just people who you know, look like me and my friends, but maybe some of those people too. Mm -hmm. um, and so that, that seemed to correlate with something like this changing attitude. Um, now, that's a plausible potential story. Um, the one difficult or one of the difficulties with that, and maybe you have an answer. If you can figure this out, mm. you'll win the Nobel Prize, I think, Router. But um, one of the difficulties with that is, well, if Christianity 
um, or a certain kind of theism where we're all, you know, children of God, equal children of God did play an important role in that. Why did it take so long? Yeah. Now, Jesus died a long time ago. So why did it take, you know, until the 17th and the 18th century for that idea to really start to spread? That's a bit harder to answer. Um, in any case, there does seem to be this correlation between those particular people who began to make this argument and the particular beliefs that they had. So whether that's a causal relationship or just a correlation yeah, accident yeah. in history, that's much harder. Well, I, I throw this out, even though you're a professor at Notre Dame, that perhaps the Protestant Reformation had a role in this uh -oh. and beliefs there. But I, I'm not going <laughs> to speculate. I'm not going to go for that Nobel Prize you're offering. So. <laughs> I'd love to shift a little, but not too far away. Uh, this year... We're going to be celebrating in June the, uh, if I have it right, the 300th anniversary of Adam Smith's uh, birth. Yes. Uh, Adam yes, Smith exactly right. has, uh, wrote uh, two important books, uh, Theory of Moral Sentiments and An Inquiry into the Nature and Causes of the Wealth of Nations. Uh, you get uh, an A for knowing that entire <laughs> name, too. Congratulations. And he also, you know, there are notes and of lectures and things that have been published uh, of his. And, you know, he, he did write The Wealth of Nations uh, because it seemingly, I guess, I'm speculating here, you know better than I do because you're a scholar of Adam Smith, but that for the first time ever, you could inquire into why is it that some nations yes. are becoming wealthy? Because no, exactly that was right. starting. Exactly. Coincidentally, the book was published the same year as the Declaration of Independence. Right. So there were things going on that... Right. Talk about a little bit about Smith's view of uh, this, the changes that were taking place in the world and what yeah. he was seeing in the, the Wealth of Nations, at least. Yeah, so the, the, the Wealth of Nations, I really think, is one of the most important books of the last millennium in many ways. Um, and, um, you know, for one big reason behind it, one big reason behind that was because just as you were saying, you know, Smith was beginning to notice that some countries were becoming wealthier, others were stagnating, others were declining. Um, and... Really, for the first time, um, you know, Smith said, well, you know, let's see if we can figure out why. What really are the causes of these things? So there were lots of stories and myths, sort of, you know, ideas, folk legends that people had in their minds about where wealth came from. But usually it resolved in the 18th century when Smith was writing. Most people thought that wealth ultimately came from little yellow pieces of metal, that the more pieces of metal you had, that was you know, the more wealth. And so if that's what you think, as many people did at the time, well, then suppose you're the king of Britain and, um, and you think wealth it consists in, met, in uh, pieces of gold. Yeah. Well, then you don't want your citizens buying, say, wine from France, because if they buy wine from France and those pieces of gold go to France, um, which means you're getting poorer, you're losing your pieces of gold, and then it's going to France and they're getting richer. Um, but... One of, the one of the things that Smith noticed about that was that, well, if, if that were true, why would people do it? Why would people be wanting to impover voluntarily impoverish themselves by sending, well, maybe they're getting something in return. Oh, wait a minute. So what do they get? They're getting the wine. If they're buying wine from France, they're getting wine. Well, maybe they value the wine maybe more than the gold. Okay. All right. Now, let, that completely changes the way we should look at things. So what Smith was wanting to know was to try to figure out, all right, well, what actually are the institutions – um, that might enable people to increase their wealth, their prosperity, on the theory, and this is one of the important things about it that often gets lost, I think, on the theory that enabling people to increase, to improve their own situations is a moral mandate because poverty was then, as extreme poverty still, there's still extreme poverty in the world today, was a debilitating, miserable experience. 
So Smith himself did a little field work, apparently, went into the highlands of Scotland. So he was Scottish. He went into the highlands of Scotland, met with some different clans of Scotland at the time in the middle part of the 18th century, um, and reports that it wasn't uncommon for a highland. I mean, they were extremely poor. It's hard today to even imagine the level of poverty. Eating, you know, they ate peat and bark, and, you know, it was very poor people. Um, wasn't uncommon for a Highlander woman to um, get pregnant more than 20 t- known, more than 20 times during her lifetime, mm. very short lifetime. Mm-hmm. Um, almost all of those children to die before four or five or six years old. So you might get, you know, um, 15 to, tw- to 20 pregnancies, maybe two of them make it to adulthood. And so Smith said, okay, you know, and for some of them, these families would face an agonizing decision. Which of our children do we feed because we can't feed them all? And so which of them do we leave to die? And so the moral mandate behind the the wealth of nations is if we can figure out how to increase the wealth in the world so that fewer people are forced to make those kinds of decisions, then that's a great good for mankind. And we really ought to do it. If we can Hmm. figure it out, let's do it. And the wealth of nations was his nearly 20 year investigation attempt to try to figure out and then give us what answers he thought he had. Interesting. Interesting. Critics of, I'll say capitalism or free markets want to dismiss the wealth of nations and and the system itself as being uh, built on selfishness because mm. Smith talked about self-interest. Yeah. Could you explain what Smith was talking about when he talked about the pursuit of self-interest? Yeah. Um, so accusing people like merchants or people engaged in commerce of being selfish is a very old critique. In fact, it goes back literally as far as, as writing does. Um, you know, when you go back and look at Aristotle and Plato and the early Greek you know, they're all worried about uh, people being selfish um, and in particular, in particular, associating that with commerce um, for various reasons. Uh, but, you know, this was Smith's view. And one of the revolutionary things about that book uh, is um, Smith said, well, let's not ask ourselves what would an ideally perfect society look like. You know, Plato already did that. You know, we have we have models of that. Instead, what he decided was, let's look at, let's see to the extent that we can understand what human beings actually are as empirical creatures. In other words, real existing creatures. Um, and try to figure out what motivates them, what moves them, what their actual desires are. And are there any constraints in those desires? In other words, are there any constants that no matter what else is true for a human being, you can pr- pretty much rely on these few things. And much the way, by the way, consciously for him, that uh, Isaac Newton before him had tried to regularize what we see in movement in the heavens and on earth. Um, can we get some principles that we can articulate that really capture a large amount of data? That's what he was trying to do for human beings. And so one of the things that he thought he discovered was that human beings, whatever else motivates them, how, what are, and are, we're complex creatures, lots of stuff motivate us. Um, but we are interested in improving our conditions. We want our lives to be better. We want our children's lives to be better. We want our families' lives, our communities, the thing, the, the parts of humanity that we know and care about and love, we want to improve their situations. So Smith thought, okay, that seems to be a relative constant. It's always been in human nature. It seems every society we know of, that seems to be true for human beings. Sometimes that can go well, sometimes it can go badly. But if we assume that that is a constraint, meaning it's a constant that goes on in human nature, whatever else might motivate, motivate people, then maybe what we should try to do is instead of trying to stamp it out of human beings, um, let's see if we can harness it. Let's see if we can direct that in such a way that the only way people can benefit themselves or benefit their own families is by benefiting other people at the same time. 
That's the in this famous invisible hand argument. So Smith says, with the right kinds of institutions, hey, wait a minute, this self-interest stuff, yeah, I can get off track, and it can be go, you know, you can be extremely self-interest, selfish. Um, but with the right kinds of institutions, it may well be that the only way that I can make myself better off, or my family, or anybody I care about, or the people I do care about, is by at the same time benefiting somebody else. And so raising it both sides. Uh, that would be a pretty extraordinary thing, and that's what he thinks he figures out. That's why he's so excited about this, because that's what he thinks he's figured out. This is what a market economy does. So it's, it's not that he figured out a way to create that system. He's saying that's how people operate in commerce. Exactly. It's if, you, if, you, if you give them, I mean, it's a, it's a simple formula. Yeah. Um, you protect them from predation, so you yeah. don't let people come along and enslave them and murder them and steal from them. I mean, just pretty low bar. Just prevent that from happening. What, what was this phrase? Peace, easy taxes, and an uh, uh, and a tolerable administration, a tolerable of, administration of justice. Of justice. Right. Yeah, just right. tolerable. Those, those it doesn't have to be perfect. It's yeah, yeah. a tolerable one. But if you if you enable that, protect that for people and as many people as possible, ideally maybe everybody. Um, what will they do? People will all on their own begin to figure out ways, look for ways to improve their lives. So they'll begin partnering trading, associating, specializing, developing different kinds of skills, creating different kinds of products. So his prediction was under that very, uh, that what he called the obvious and simple system of natural liberty, you mm -hmm. just protect natural liberty. natural liberty. You're, he predicted, yeah, this is 1776, so he couldn't imagine iPhones and podcasts, of course, but yeah. um, he predicted that you would see so much um, production, innovation, um, new prosperity that you would barely be able to recognize the world in the future. And in fact, one thing I have to get this in one prediction he made in 1776 was he said, you know, it looks like those Americans, they seem to be figuring this out. Um, and he said, it's actually possible that the Americans whom, by the way, in Britain, you know, they thought of them all as, you know, the savages with pitchforks and whatever farmers and, you know, couldn't figure out anything. He said, it's possible they might even one day be wealthier than the British empire. Can you imagine somebody yeah. saying that in 1776? About and this then, colony. About this uh, yeah. tiny colony of savages, yeah. 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 And look what subsequent history has shown. Yeah, and, and, and subsequent history has shown that there was a tremendous amount of increase in living standards, which we've, we've mm -hmm. talked about, tremendous growth in inequality, because mm -hmm. some people really got rich, mm -hmm. and, uh, and a discovery by people in Congress that by redistributing wealth, no. <laughs> uh, they could uh, more easily get reelected, I guess. No, yeah. <laughs> but uh, talking about inequality a little bit more, uh, your recent book uh, was uh, Should Wealth Be Redistributed? Yeah. Uh, yep. Debate. Right. And uh, in that book, uh, uh, give me a summary of the arguments of your opponent. Yeah. On arguing for the redistribution of wealth. Yeah. Um, so my opponent is an economist at Hope College named Stephen McMullen. Um, and the, the main argument that he makes is that, um, you know, thinking about many countries, but he focuses on the United States. In the United States, there are some people whose poverty, you know, maybe it's not the same kind of absolute poverty that you see in other parts of the world, but nevertheless, their poverty um, prevents them from fully participating in the economic life of the United States. And so he really makes sort of a two connected arguments from that premise. On the one hand, that means that um, people who can't, they're not fully participating in the economic life of the United States, which means that their own lives are in various different ways impoverished. 
Um, that's not just uh, monetarily impoverished. It could also mean sort of mentally impoverished, socially impoverished. They just don't have the kinds of integrative opportunities that people who can participate in life that, um, um, who can participate in that life uh, would have. The other part of it is, and this is more of a sort of, a, you know, I guess, an economist's argument or a consequentialist argument, is that the United States would, the rest of us would actually be much better off if more of the people who were, you know, in the lower parts of the economic, you know, the lower uh, parts of the economic uh, breakdown in the United States could actually participate in economic life. So, you know, they can contribute. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, both of those, so those are sort of the, the two main arguments he makes. And then uh, the conclusion he draws is that if you redistribute some of the wealth from some of the wealthiest in the United States, um, to some of these people. What you can do is enable them to participate more fully in the economic, um, in economic life in the United States. And then there would all be all of these benefits that would ensue from it. Well, uh, I recall in, uh, Robert Nozick's book, Anarchy, State and Utopia, hmm. published in the mid seventies, I guess, mm -hmm. he had that thought experiment where if you took all the wealth in the country, and you divided it by all the people in the country. Mm -hmm. So we all had the same amount of wealth. Yeah. Uh, as soon as you allow people any freedom to trade, to use that wealth, yeah. very quickly it returns to a very yeah. inequality soci unequal society. Yeah. Uh, but what, yeah. what was your counter argument to his, the argument he made? Yeah. So, um, so it's a, it's a strong argument. And one of the main worries, so I have a sort of a moral argument, a moral worry about the, the initial moral premise that I think any kind of public policy should, um, should start with is that all human beings are, um, are equal moral agents. I call it the principle of equal moral agency, um, which is connected with this notion of human dignity we were talking about a little mm -hmm. earlier. But um, what that means in practice, I think, is that if, if we really believe that all human beings have a kind of, from birth, in, in virtue of being human, you have a moral agency that should be respected. What that means in practice is that um, we have to be very careful. I say you have to meet a very high argumentative burden to justify interposing into other people's lives and either forcing them to do something they don't want to do or taking from them something they don't want to give up. Doesn't mean you can't ever do it, yeah. um, but you really have to have a compelling reason for it. Um, so that's the first sort of piece of my argument. And the other piece of it without, you know, I want you to read the book. I want everybody to read the sure, book and read the sure. whole thing. But the other piece of it that I argue is that there's um, there's a hidden premise of McMullen's argument, which is not just him. Many people make a similar argument, enabling people to you know engage to more fully participate in the economic life can have various um, benefits. I think I think that's true. Um, but the the hidden piece of that argument is the next step, which says therefore we should redistribute because um, we've had many many many, and by many I mean thousands of experiments in human history of forcibly redistributing wealth from some to others with good intentions. So we can look at these. How do they turn out? Well, the track record is not good. Um, so oftentimes what it'll do is either not much at all, and that's almost the best case scenario. Mm -hmm. You really can't tell any difference at all. Um, but more often than, not, than that, what you get is various unintended bad consequences. So overall prosperity in a society might begin to decline. So everybody quickly becomes worse off. Sometimes you have divides that, that come up in society because people resent the fact that you're giving my money to them or you're taking this from me and giving it to them. And so we start to divide ourselves into us versus them. You have these kinds of um, divisions that can arise in society. And then the, the other piece of it that I think we often don't think about very much is that um, when you say we could redistribute, well, who's the we exactly? 
Wow. Well, government. It's our benevolent Uncle Sam. Exactly. Well, but are you assuming that the people who are going to actually effectuate this, the mechanism, the, the, the mm-hmm. actual mechanism of redistribution are more virtuous than most human beings or uh, more w- or wiser than most human beings? Who are these people? Or do they have all of the biases, self-interest and everything and vices that most human beings have? If you think they're just regular human beings, they're just people like everybody else, then the cha- that greatly reduces the, the confidence you should have that by endorsing some kind of program, whatever result you imagine it would have would actually happen in practice. Doesn't, doesn't it run counter to his argument as well because it would disincentivize these people well, that I, you're giving the money to to be, enter more productive? Uh, this is one of these interesting uh, sort of psychological and empirical yeah, questions. You know, yeah. what, what effect would it or does it have yeah. on people? Um, and um, there in the book, if you read the book, we, 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 each of us, we give respectively different takes on this empirical evidence. So I cite quite a bit of evidence that from in my mind makes a pretty strong case that um, what you might end up doing unintentionally um, is actually sapping from people the desire to improve their own conditions because they don't yeah. need to anymore. Yeah. And we there's see quite plenty a, of that. There's quite a bit of evidence that also shows that, um, you know, things like, and I think this is one of the problems with a slightly different issue, which is, you know, universal basic income. Um, you know, whatever the intentions we might have by, you know, giving some, giving, you know, all citizens a certain amount of money every year to, um, um, to enable them to rise up to, you know, to engage in economic activity. There's quite a bit of evidence that, that to me at least makes a strong case, if not quite decisive yet, but makes a strong case that, um, you have to be very careful with that because the, the unintended result of that is often that people just basically give up. They stop working. Now that, what does that lead to? Well, Put aside whatever economic consequences you think it has. For those people themselves, it leads, it's almost a recipe for an unhappy life because they come to wonder, what's the purpose of my life? Mm-hmm. If I have no demands on me to do something, nobody's expecting me, nobody is depending on me, I can just sit home and do nothing. In the moment, it might seem like a great idea. Oh, great, I can spend, a, you know, I don't have to work. Okay. Um, but in the long run, um, a life worth living has to yeah. be one that's engaged, that's social, that's active. And if we don't, you know, we're, we're an active species. And yeah, if we're not I mean, being active, I mean, then I think you're, you're portending a lot of deep unhappiness. Yeah, you, they get to the end of their lives and, you know, Wonder what lived, the in a, lived in a subsidized housing with uh, government checks coming in every month and yeah. not having to use their own talents and abilities to achieve that American dream. You're trained in economics and philosophy uh, your current appointment and your last were in business schools, uh, or at least you taught in business schools. You developed a very interesting course at Wake Forest that you're teaching at Notre Dame mm-hmm. called Why Business. Oh, yeah. uh, yeah. Talk about that course. I mean, it's, I've looked at the syllabus. It's a fascinating course. And, oh, and tell you. me about the reaction you get from students. Thank you. Um, I'm really proud of that course. Um, but it really came about by accident. I was asked to teach um, a business ethics course, and I, um, I had never taught one before. So I decided to look at you know, what other people were, um, were using to teach business ethics courses. And one of the things that I noticed about a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them was that they were really a kind of series of murderers row. You know, we're going to look at a lot of really bad actors. We'll look at the, you know, the guys from Enron. Weren't they terrible? They were terrible. Listen, Bernie Madoff, he was terrible. And, um, and, you know, soon we'll be looking, I suppose, at, um, at Sam Bankman Freed or something. You know, maybe he'll be the next one in the list. I don't know. But it was a lot of bad actors. And there have been and continue to be bad actors in business, as there are in all walks of life. Um, but my idea was maybe we could 
turn the purpose of a course like that around a little bit and, and instead ask the students not just to consider and don't be like these bad people, which they, we don't want them to be bad people. But on the other hand, let's consider something, look at it a little differently. Is there a moral purpose that your life could serve in business? And if so, what is it? What would that be? That's a totally different way of looking at business. And so that's really what gave rise to this course. So the course is, is ask students to think, to ask themselves, is it possible to be completely virtuous and at the same time completely engaged in a market economy? Or do you have to make trade-offs? And if so, what are they? And you know, when you start thinking about it like that, wow, that opens up all kinds of interesting possibilities. Is it possible for there to be such a thing as honorable business, business that you don't have to atone for or make up for afterwards, um, or not? And if there is honorable business, well, what exactly is dishonorable business? So that's really what that, the, that course is about. It looks at various perspectives about um, uh, worries, concerns, but also arguments in favor of business from sort of the, the perspective of virtue. Um, and we ask students to try to develop a question. You know, if you're going to dedicate your life, your life to business, um, you're going to become a business professional, well, then you better have an answer to this question of why are you doing that? And, and if you don't, then maybe you ought to think about doing something else. <laughs> Well, you, you mentioned they're bad actors in business, like in every other profession, but uh, I think even in politics there are. But you don't see ethics courses in political science departments. Maybe that's where we need them. <laughs> that's, where we, that's where we need them. Why politics? Or Why politics? <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, maybe, maybe I'll have to think about yeah, that. I'll talk to some of my colleagues in the uh, political science department. Uh, I, I know at, uh, at Wake Forest, that was, I think, a required course for all business students, yeah, right? We and, just, yes, right uh, but the then process. you met some resistance from the... Uh, faculty of, uh, I don't know if it's called arts and sciences there, but the non-business faculty who didn't want their students taking that course, what was that resistance? Yeah. Um, you know, and I don't think it was necessarily, I mean, you know, people might've had different reasons for, um, their concerns about the course. Um, but I think, for, uh, one of them was that, that it might be possible that this course is, they, they, I think some of my colleagues thought that this course was actually trying to talk students into being, business people, and you might insert kind of in your mind, greedy, heartless, or something like that, um, valorizing business or profit making over other important things in human life. Um, in other words, that the course might become an advocacy for a certain kind of you know, economic worldview um, that many of them, to be frank, found a bit distasteful, yeah. um, rather than a disinterested scholarly exploration of things. Um, and I think that was, uh, now I don't think that's what the course was. Um, it did invite those questions and we, and we did and continue. We look at very different perspectives on whether it's possible to be a fully moral person as a, and a business person integrated at the same time. But I think some of them thought, well, you know, uh, we already own the corner on, we have the corner of the market on moral philosophy. Um, we don't need this course in a business school trying to do something different. Um, and, you know, students, I think, really responded well to the course. They liked the course, and many of them were taking the course. And, um, and, and if you live in a world where, um, you know, where one department's success comes at the expense of the other department, you got to be careful yeah. about these things yeah. as well. So. Well, we've been grateful for your uh, teaching and TFAS programs in the past and yeah, the times pleasure. you come to lecture. Uh, how have you found TFAS students? Fantastic. Mm -hmm. They're great. Okay. I mean, one of the great things about them is, you know, these are, these are kids that give me hope for the future, frankly. You know, it's very Good. easy to lose hope about the future. Um, you know, every day now, you know, my Twitter feed is constantly filled with all the terrible things going on. Yeah. There are plenty of yeah. terrible things yeah. going on. Um, but just when you're thinking about losing hope, 
um, or that it might be hopeless. What you see when you see a group of young, intelligent, energetic people who, who say, I want to figure out how the world works. I really want to figure out how, how it actually, not how I imagine it should work, but how is it really working? And where can I apply my unique talents and gifts in such a way as we can maybe make some improvements? That's really inspiring. Um, and that's what you get at TFES. I think the students you get are, you know, maybe they don't know yet exactly what field they're going to go into, what discipline they're going to go into, but they're all united in believing that some part of the story of America's prior success and its future success will be um, liberty, um, opportunity, and I want to make those things come alive for other people, for myself, my children, my, my grandchildren. Um, and we're not going to have a, a continuing American dream unless you have more students like that. And I think that's exactly the students you get at TFES, which makes it so much fun to work with them. Wonderful. Have you started thinking about your next book? I mean, you seem to be yes. putting one out about every year. So, <laughs> well, uh, thank you're very you. Yes, productive. I appreciate that. Uh, my dean has been asking me that too, because, you know, my other book, it's already two months since my last <laughs> book. So, um, I, yes. So I've begun to, uh, the beginnings. I'm in the beginning stages. So no promises of where it'll end up, but I'm, yeah. I'm, uh, interested in this concept of human dignity. So, you know, this, that notion of human dignity, um, mm -hmm. it's all over in business ethics literature. It's all over in development economics. Everybody talks about human dignity. But when I've looked into that a little, what I've noticed is that the concept of human dignity gets invoked in the service of lots of different kinds of things, which are often mutually inconsistent. So that tells me as a philosopher that you know, maybe there's something strange going on with the concept because no single concept should imply mutually contradictory things. Um, and so as I've looked into it a little bit, what I've, what I, here, here's my little gloss. Here's my two sentence summary of my yeah. book. Um, lots of um, discussions of human dignity are really applications of it, but they presume that somebody, somebody has get written volume one. That's all volume two. Yeah. Volume one yeah. is what well, is what this is concept? It? And that really hasn't been written yet. So I'm thinking that I might try to make that attempt and, and explore some of the sometimes some surprising the, implications maybe, of it. Once you get a, once you get a real, um, you know, a substantive but coherent conception of human dignity, it can have some pretty surprising implications. Yeah. I, uh, that could have tremendous influence on that, uh, in different religious, different, uh, sources for that concept yeah, no, throughout exactly. our history. So exactly. wow, I look forward to reading that book. Uh, thank you, Roger. All right. <laughs> I appreciate all you've done with TFAS. If you were to uh, offer some advice to students uh, at an, in Notre Dame or in uh, at TFAS as they come to the end of a course, uh, I'm sure students sometimes ask you for either career advice or uh, yeah. advice as they go forward. What kinds of things do you offer them? Yeah. You know, I, I, I teach in a business school as we've discussed. Yeah. And so one of the things I tell my students in the business school, and maybe this could be generalized too, but one of the things I tell them is um, your first question should never be how much money are you going to make. It's not that there's anything wrong with making money. Um, your first question should be what kind of value can I contribute in the world? You know, you are a unique creature. We're at Notre Dame, so I can say you are a uniquely created human being, yes. created in the image and likeness of God. Of the infinity of persons God could have created, he created you. That means you have some unique package of abilities, skills, talents that literally nobody else has. Your job is to figure out how can I use those to create genuine value in the world. And if you focus on that, if that's your North Star, everything else will take care of itself. The money and all, you know, you'll, and family and raising your kids, all of that will take care of itself. But you think about that. Um, and I think that's might be something that I would say also um, re uh, regarding TFAS and its students and its programs. Um, that's really what TFAS enables you to do. 
you might not know exactly what it, what is the best use, best in, not just in a monetary sense, but best in a much broader sense. What's the best use of my unique talents, my, um, this short time that I have on earth? Um, and I think TFAS is a really great opportunity to really try to figure out what that is and make some real headway towards it. Well, you've certainly figured that out for yourself, and you've been creating a tremendous amount of value already and continue to. So it's uh, great to have you with us today. Professor Jim Otteson. Thank you, Jim. Thank you very much, Roger. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Liberty and Leadership Podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe, download, like, or share the show on Apple, Spotify, or YouTube, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you like this episode, I ask you to rate and review it. And if you have a comment or question for the show, please drop us an email at podcast at tfast.org. The Liberty and Leadership Podcast is produced at K Global Studios in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Roger Ream. And until next time, show courage in things large and small.